0: And we listened, everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people wrote to us or commented that they would like to hear our opinions on the Netflix hit TV show, Bridgerton. So you asked and you shall receive. It is 2021, (laughs) friends. (laughs) And uh, we should say this is probably going to be full of spoilers, possibly. I don't know where this conversation is going. April and I have not talked about it yet. Uh -uh. Uh, But uh, yeah, so be warned. If you have not watched it, we highly recommend you do. But we might talk about some things. uh, So you might want to watch it first and then come back to this episode. Yes, for sure. But I, I think this show, April, with everything that is going on in the world, was just the perfect form of escapism. And for our follow- listeners who need a little refresher or might not know about this show, it's a Netflix series uh, by showrunner Chris Van Dusen. And Chandra Rhymes production company produced it.
1: Which, by the way, I just did not realize. I knew who she was, but I didn't realize that like she was behind Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, so let's just
0: let's put that in context <laughs> as to who Shonda Rhimes. Yeah, is. she's a production powerhouse. Yeah, of and a writer, really hit TV and showrunner, shows. like yeah. she does it all basically. <laughs> yeah, and so she saw something in this book series by author Julia Quinn, and it's basically a romance a Regency-era romance series of novels. And when we say Regency-era, I just want to clarify that the Regency-era follows the Georgian era, and this is in London, in England. The Georgian era is so-called because of the reign of a series of kings called George. Um, and, <laughs> and by the time we get to Keaton George III, who's ruling during the Bridgerton series, um, he's actually not ruling because he's living with a mental illness. And in 1811, uh, he, because he's no longer able to rule, his son takes over and rules as a regent until his death in 1820. So when we say Regency era, that is what we're speaking about. And so Bridgerton, it follows the escapades of two families, the Bridgertons, and the Featheringtons as they embark on the opening of the 18. 18- 13 London scene. So basically, the introduction of daughters to society, they go to all these balls, and it's really about hopes of making love matches, well, actually not love matches, but people just getting married matches. Um, <laughs> matches, yes. <laughs> it's a, It's the social scene, too. Yeah, you know? social scene, exactly. And everyone is awaiting the gossip column from this anonymous woman, Lady Whistledown. Julie Andrews does the voice, um, but we never see who it is until the very, very end. And her unsolicited insights into the illicit affairs of polite society really keep everyone on their toes, including the queen. Um, But front and center in this story is, of course, the tumultuous relationship between Daphne, Bridgerton, uh, the diamond of the social season, and then the incredibly dashing Simon, Duke of Hastings, played by Regé-Jean Page. Uh, who has in the series vowed never to marry. So that's the little synopsis. April, we have not talked about it. I am dying to know what you thought in general.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, I just want to preface this with, I did watch it um, and I watched it kind of early on when it first came out. And I had already watched a few episodes when you had texted me being like, watch this, how are you watching this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm watching it. But I wasn't watching it or analyzing it at that time for, like, historical accuracy or, you know, really analyzing the costumes. Um, I would... I had it on. I loved it. I thought it was super fun. But, you know, sometimes I was also making dinner or, you know, on my computer or doing other things. So, Cass, you might be able to comment a little bit further in detail on some of the finer points of historical accuracy. I did go back and watch a couple of the um, first earliest episodes again when we decided that we were going to do this episode. But I thought it was, like you said, in this moment, it was super fun. Um, It's playful. It's I was surprised by how much sex there was. I
0: was gonna actually. say it's very sexy and erotic. At times. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, it's kind of graphic at yeah. certain points. I was like, "Oh, damn, this is not the uh, like historic like you know series not that we what you usually not see, we usually which get." Is amazing. No, yeah. So, and that's also part of what it made. Fun. You know, it's a, it's a very much an adult show. It's it's not a Jane Austen novel. So, I, my one comment when I thought about it was in terms of it being, you know, based in history, is that they turned the volume up on <laughs> right. everything. So so whether it be those sex scenes or whether it be like the color palettes of the costumes. And I think another thing that people will first notice is that the cast is racially diverse. I mean, two of the lead roles, the queen and also the duke, are played by Black actors. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more, But, but those are just kind of like some of my initial thoughts.
0: Yeah. And my initial thoughts were I absolutely loved it. I think a lot of our listeners like myself, and I think you did too, just binge watched the entire thing. And then I started watching it again. And it's so funny because I was actually in a meeting with my PhD advisor and she recommended I watched it as a respite from what's going on (laughs) with the political world, with COVID, everything. And I mean, it's just so true. It really just speaks to the fact that We all really needed something like this right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really fun, and I really enjoyed it uh, overall. Yes. And I mean, what an incredible feat of costuming, April, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. A uh, costume designed by Ellen Majornick. And I apologize if that's not how you pronounce her name. Um, but it's Ellen uh, Alan Majornick who comes from April. I don't know if you know this, she designed Basic Instincts, Fatal Attraction, before, you know, those kind of suspense thriller 1980s, 90s classics now. Mm-hmm. Um, before moving on to things like The Greatest Showman and and films like Maleficent. So she's very qualified to do this sort of period fantasy filmmaking. And she did this wonderful interview with Vogue, and it it gives us insight into just this feat of costuming. I'm going to quote her here. She says, it took five months to prepare before we went to shoot. The costume team came to 238 people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, because they created 7,500 costumes. Yes. And I think (laughs) the biggest costume team I've ever worked on was 50 people. So that is insane. That's a lot of people. And then she goes on, this is inclusive of the pattern cutters, the extraordinary Mr. Pearl, who was our corset maker, a tailoring department, an embellishing department, embroiderers, and my co-captain, John Glaser. I believe he's her assistant designer, um, among others. It was like a Bridgerton city of elves working continuously, and they were brilliant. As you said, April, she says, in the end, there were about 7,500 pieces from hats to shawls to overcoats that made up the estimated five thousand costumes that went before the camera. For Phoebe, who plays Daphne uh, Bridgerton alone, there were 104 costumes. That's a big number even for a principal player. And uh, yeah, what an incredible feat of costuming. And as you mentioned, April, and as we are going to go into now, this is set in 1813, it serves as the foundation for the costumes, but she really just turns up the volumes. And I love this quote for Women's Wear Daily. She says, the, it's like a big ice cream sundae with all the toppings. It's yeah. frothy <laughs> and delicious and total escapism. And I think that's a perfect description for this perfectly delicious show.
1: Yes, I agree. And um, also she said in the press that, um, I'm going to quote her again. She says, being 100% historically correct was not our agenda at all. And I'm ready to get ripped over the coals if somebody wants to do it. But... <laughs> That's what it is. You birth it, and then you let it out in the air, and somebody will either not like it or they'll like it. And this is really interesting about like that kind of like frothy confection feeling cast that she is like kind of teasing out within the show. She actually says that she was partially inspired by the Christian Dior designer of dreams exhibition. I that. Yeah, and so she kind of looked at a lot of Dior's textiles and a lot of his color palettes. Um, so I thought I thought that. That was like super duper interesting.
0: Yeah, the 50s and 60s, which I think Vogue described the textiles as ice cream pastels and acid bright florals. So when you look at the Bridgertons, for instance, versus the Featheringtons, there's this clear aesthetic immediately. It's mm-hmm. almost jarring aesthetic difference. But we're talking costuming here. So historical accuracy is kind of left in the dust sometimes to help tell the story. And visually, if you have this, you know, kind of proper, you know, the respectable family, like the Bridgertons, they're all in, um, you know, kind of these pastel color pellets. And then you look at the feathering tins who are in these like jarring, like acid textiles that are amazing. And I think you um, mentioned uh, in a previous conversation, that the mother is like uh, 1960s, yeah, that like hairstyle.
1: <laughs> a lot of those those textiles that the Featheringtons are wearing are are look exactly like textiles from the 1960s. You know, the silhouettes of the dresses are always kind of like in keeping within the Bridgertons and the Featheringtons, but it's all the the other things that are telling the story. Like there is there are way too many sequins. <laughs> For historical accuracy. Worn by everyone. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the colors are not quite right. There's there's too much embellishment for that period. And I do want to point out that um, if anybody is actually fans of films um, from this period, usually you see that a lot of the gowns were white, um, which we do see a lot in fashion plates of that same period. But we also should point out that we do see quite a bit of color in the fashion plates from that era as well. So usually the flashes of color were added by way of a coat or a shawl or gloves um, or hats, but but color was definitely worn. So just throw that out the window that that the entire Regency period was white. It was a very popular color, but it was not the only color. So if I had to kind of like say, you know, the Bridgertons are perhaps more a little bit closer to historical accuracy in terms of like the color palette, whereas uh, the Featheringtons have just completely gone off the deep
0: end. Yeah, (laughs) which leads us into our conversation on historical accuracy. But I do just want to say, um, obviously, we're fashion historians. We're going to talk about what they would have worn. But that is not the point of this show. No. And if you're expecting that, then you're going to be sorely disappointed, as a lot of people were, which I think is odd, because it was never billed as a historically accurate show. Everything from the way it's cast to all of these, you know, the storyline and a lot of... Just a lot of things about it are not historically accurate. And the costumes are really exemplary of that. This is a fantasy. It's, it's escapism at its finest. And if you can just immediately upon watching the first episode, it's like, okay, I'm just going to let it go. I can't judge anything and 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 she is ellen is right in that people had a lot to say about this and we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk about it too but april let's talk about the regency era in general just kind of as an overview cuz we're talking about the post revolutionary war era there's a common misconception that you know people burned their corsets on the fire in the french revolution and that it was this immediate change to these high-waisted muslin gowns but that's that's not actually true
1: No, no, it's not. And and as with all fashion changes and shifts in silhouette, things just don't happen overnight. I mean, we do start to see that high-waisted kind of like gossamer gown emerge at like the really kind of like, avant-garde subcultures like with the merveilleuses which we've already done an episode on actually two episodes on so you can go back and, and listen to those if you want to learn more but that kind of like columnar gown with the high waist um, oftentimes in white starts to emerge in the like latter years of the French Revolutionary War but you know it, that is not immediately adopted by everyone right that, that was kind of like I mean that's why they were called merveilleuses people were so shocked by by what these women were wearing. So that was kind of like really extremely fashion-forward, subcultural style, and not everybody just adopted it overnight.
0: Right. And even before the war, like Marie Antoinette, the chemise a la reine, which was this cottony uh, gown that she wore, it's thought that... Uh, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, gifted her some of her chemises. So that chemise gown idea was even becoming in style thanks to Queen Marie Antoinette in the Mm -hmm. pre-revolutionary era. And then just continued to develop after that, inspired by neoclassicism and those types of ideals that continue to influence fashion in the post-revolutionary war era. And then by the time we get to 1813, we are seeing, in general, Ellen did stick to the general silhouette, which is that high-waisted, you know, so-called empire uh, gown and that columnar line. And it's funny that you mentioned the white muslin gowns because that was highly fashionable. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ellen said that there was a no-no for muslin gowns. There's a she quote said, "There's a limpness to them that we did not want." So, mm-hmm. you know, it's so important when you're considering TV and film to realize that even if she wanted to be historically accurate, even if she was the leading historian turned costume designer on the Regency era, she does not have the final say in these costumes. <laughs> There's so many opinions that go into it from the producers, the showrunners, the directors, and then just the script and the costume, you know, the the costume as narrative. So it's it's kind of unfair to judge this show entirely um, as a product of, of historical accuracy because it's just not the point.
1: And I'm glad you brought up Marie Antoinette because uh, can we just talk about uh, this, silhouettes that the queen and her <laughs> attendants are wearing? <laughs> because yes, one, of the, one, one of these other really big points of historical accuracy is that, yes, we were talking about this, you know, empire columnar silhouette from 1813 that the majority of the cast is wearing. However, the queen and her attendants are all dressed like it's the
0: 1770s. Right. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's amazing. I loved it. Yeah. And her hairstyles are insane. All of her wigs, all of her costumes. It's like you stepped out of one world and into another. I saw a short blip interview with Golda, who plays her. I mm-hmm. mean um, she said there's just no there's not meant to be continuity of the queen's costumes. It's supposed to feel like she's in her own world. And I and I think she did. And Ellen said she looks, she quotes, uh, the Queen looks like cotton candy in every conceivable flavor. So again, that candy Sunday idea that this is just like over the top. Uh, and for Ellen, she really embodied what Bridgerton is all about, and I, that the costumes really are a testament to that. Yes, yes.
1: And of course, uh, Golda Rocheville, sorry again if I'm butchering her last name, um, is a Black British actress. So let's talk about this. This is a really interesting decision that Shonda made to cast Queen Charlotte, who was a real historical figure, um, with a Black actress to play her. And so I thought it was really interesting. I started kind of like pulling the thread on that a little bit. And I found this really fascinating article, that which was written um a few weeks ago by denine l brown it was published in the washington post and he's talking about how certain scholars have put forth the idea that uh, queen charlotte was actually descended from the portuguese royal family who had Moorish blood in the family. So there's a lot of um, actual academics out there that do believe that Queen Charlotte was was part Black. So I thought that that was just really, really interesting in the context of quote-unquote historical accuracy. And then a lot of people had a lot to say too about this question of Queen Charlotte's ancestry in conjunction with Meghan Markle coming into the British family. You know, a lot of people have said that Meghan, you know, was the first, um, you know, mixed-race royal. And perhaps that is not true. Potentially, it was Queen Charlotte.
0: Yeah, and I mean, Golda just does such a wonderful job with her. Yeah. With that character throughout. I mean, she's she's so enthralled with, like, the lady whistle-down gossip. And, um, and uh, while her, you know— really out-of-place costumes were not accurate. There are portraits of Queen Charlotte. She did adapt with the fashionable silhouettes of the period, but she did not allow court costume or court dress to evolve with the period. She still required women coming to court to wear these giant hoop skirts, Mm -hmm. like which are... Not, you know, not in keeping with the fashionable silhouette of the period. So if you look up 1813 court fashions from England versus France, um, they will wear these huge hoop skirts, but they did not do that in Bridgerton, which I thought was actually interesting because that is an opportunity to do an over-exaggerated silhouette, but perhaps they thought it might have been a little too comical.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, in um, the fashion, in my fashion plates book, there is a court costume um, from England in the book from this time period. And that particular one is really, really interesting because it's not that V shaped bodice. That, that is worn in the film that was worn in the 1770s where the waist is really narrow. This particular fashion plate from that era shows the Ampere waist silhouette worn with panniers. So when you say comical, it really was. It was like this teeny tiny little bodice. And then the woman was like this oval bouffant <laughs> balloon on the bottom. So, so that... That may be the reason why, because it it is quite a funny image. (laughs) Maybe maybe we should post it.
0: I'll post it.
1: I'll (laughs) post it on our Instagram this week so you can see what I mean. You'll understand why perhaps that decision was made to stick with that
0: classic kind of like Marie Antoinette silhouette. And a couple other things. I mean, like I said, I was there for the costumes. There were two things, though, that drove me Absolutely crazy, well, one thing that drove me crazy, and that was the fact that there was no bonnets throughout the entire show, <laughs> and Ellen does acknowledge that that was a conscious decision. I know that it can it's hard to to shoot uh, That's what I was film that. Say.
1: Because your face is obscured. So I think that's probably what that
0: decision was. However, it just is so out of place. I mean, these women are walking in the sun. It's completely impractical. There's no way they would have been out there without some sort of head covering. Um, And of course, it's like, it's just part of respectable society back then. So that was pretty jarring. And then also, Daphne's hair drove me crazy because it was constantly down. And again, as a fashion historian, you know that um, once you reach a certain age, a marriageable age, your hair goes up as a woman. So it just made her look very young, very naive, and it just just felt out of place. So that bothered me.
1: Maybe that was maybe that was an intentional choice, though, to to kind of like push forward that naivete. Like yeah.
0: yeah. Because she's
1: definitely sexually inexperienced. And there's like a whole plot line about her trying to figure out that aspect of her marriage.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And then the other thing, and I you'll probably join me. Uh, in and sharing the sentiment is that they didn't wear chemises under their corsets under their oh stings. yeah no and no that, that's complete no <laughs> no
1: like there's there's actually one scene where you see Daphne like she has like bloody marks on her back right yeah and you're like no she would have had a whole layer on underneath that that would prevent that or at least at least a little bit protected it
0: yeah absolutely. And the whole corset myth, too, is something we just see time and time again. It's just a trope that's repeated in almost all period films. I mean, it's just something that, for whatever reason, our culture loves to look back and think that women did that to themselves. In reality, especially during this period, stays weren't boned because you had this flowing skirt from your under your bosom. So why would you need to tighten your waist if you weren't even going to see it? Mm -hmm. Um, So they were more like bras or or breast supporters at this period. And they're
1: fabric and they're like heavily reinforced with stitching, you know, multiple layers of your textile, like creating that stiffness.
0: But again, that's not sexy to us today. And so that's another thing we have to consider is that even though back then it might not have been historically accurate... For modern audiences, um, you have to consider what people want to see and what is going to, you know, entice them. Uh, so you have to make it intriguing in other ways.
1: Relatable. Isn't that like a, a, co- a frequent word used by customers doing historical period films is that there's one film that, or, or production that d- goes full-on accurate, and then there's the other that is like trying to like bridge that connection to the modern-day audience. So and I think they did that a lot with textiles in this production.
0: For sure. And it, yeah, it just, it definitely was speaking to something. And like I said, historical fantasy. I was here for it. Did you have any favorite costumes?
1: Oh, oh, well, just, just about everything that Daphne wore. I don't know.
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> I loved Lady Danbury. I loved her character. Yes. Uh, Simon's aunt or his mother's friend um, who raised him. Everything she wore was, all her high collars, She's amazing. Uh-huh.
1: There's there's one ensemble that she wears that was like this really deep plum purple, and it was pro- it was like an iridescent taffeta. Yeah, or perhaps I really loved that, and it just looks so beautiful on her that color.
0: Yeah, and the gents, of course, uh, we can talk a little bit about them. But Everything that Simon wore, I mean, he just looked so dapper and dashing, and everything that he wore, I thought was fantastic as well.
1: I will I will admit that because. I wasn't necessarily watching it with my eye on complete historical accuracy. Um, listeners, go and check out Frock Flicks. They wrote a really interesting article and something that they pointed out. And that was that his he's never wearing the correct cravat. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> he just kind of has like his collar on and then just like a little kind of like scarf, like barely peeking <laughs> out. Whereas like during this time period, a gentleman's neck. Would be completely covered. So if you go back and watch it, look at what Simon's cravat looks like versus the Bridgerton boys, and then you'll you'll no- note that difference. But I didn't even notice it as a fashion historian when I was watching it. Like, I just
0: stopped, honestly, at to a, at a certain point. I just stopped and just accepted it for what it was. <laughs> But um, I'm glad you mentioned Frock Flicks because there's a lot. If you want to go on a deep dive, there is so much more to be said about this show. If you want more on historical accuracy about what they actually would have worn, you can go onto YouTube, on Costube, Costuming YouTube. So many historical costumers have have put forth their opinion. A couple videos I recommend is Rebecca of Lady Rebecca Fashions did a, quote, a plus size rant (laughs) about the fit uh, on the costumes for Penelope. Featherington. Her high waist of her gowns often cut across her bosom, um, which is not only not historically accurate, it wasn't very flattering. Um, so she kind of talks about um, plus size fashions from that period. There's there's videos on men's fashions from this period, mm-hmm. women's fashions. There's videos, Abby Cox did a great one, um, past dress guest uh, on um, the costume department. And then finally, I just wanted to say that Noelle of Costuming Drama posted a wonderful panel on her channel, Costuming Drama, called Why Bridgerton is Problematic, Colorism, Race-Baiting, and Implicit Bias. I don't think we're going to go into that here, but it includes our guest for Tuesday's episode, Christine, historical costumer Steen, and she will actually give us some more insights into that on Tuesday.
1: Yay! This was so fun. I'm glad that we got to do this.
0: Yeah, it was fun, and it was fun to just do an entire episode about one TV show that we both watched. And dress listeners, if you haven't watched it... <laughs> Go out and watch it because it's 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 I, it's wonderful. And let us know what you thought about it too. It's your new favorite guilty pleasure, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that does it for us, dress listeners. Um, and yeah, get out there, watch Bridgerton. Consider making your own Bridgerton costume, perhaps next time you get dressed. Thank you, as always,
1: to our producers Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you next week on Tuesday.
0: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.